I'm going to start by reading chapter 7, which is all about being released from the law. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever had one of those weeks where you feel just like spiritually under attack? Like everything in your life is great, but your head's just getting pecked. Like my confidence has been chipped that away, away at all this week. Uh, there's no good reason. No good reason I can think of. Um, except for the fact that I am preaching this morning on being released from the law. Because I genuinely believe that is one of the devil's best tactics. Is getting people thinking that they are doing the right thing by trying to, trying to be good and follow the law. And they get so bound up that they end up missing the point completely. So, pray for me this morning as we delve into the word. Here we go. Chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man whilst her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in flesh, our sinful passions... Uh, hang on. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what, is, what it is to covet, had the law not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin may be shown as sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin who dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. It's like a tongue twister, this, isn't it? Now I do what I want, I do what I do not want. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil, close, evil lies close at hand. 
For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see it in my members. I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That's a mouthful, isn't it? So some background to this letter, because um, that's what this is. Not all the books of the Bible are written as letters, but this one is in particular. Let me just move that out of the way just for a moment. So this letter was written at a critical time for the Roman church. Initially, the Christian church in Rome was established by Jewish believers, who were later exiled from Rome when the emperor took a bit of a dislike to them and made them a scapegoat for all Rome's problems leaving the newly converted Gentiles to take over the leadership of the local church. When the exile was eventually lifted by Emperor Nero, the Jewish leaders returned to Rome. There was a lot of conflict and discord amongst the Jewish founders and the now Gentile leadership. This discord was in the main due to differences between the Gentiles, who perceived the law in civil terms, and the Jews, who perceived the law in religious terms. Paul in this letter, is making an argument to both camps. He's trying to state that whatever the impact of the law, whatever the impact the law has in exposing sin to either groups, neither of them has to live under the condemnation of the law that brings sin and death, but must embrace the law of the Spirit. Which is to say, by submitting to Jesus as our Saviour, we receive justification through grace. As a consequence, the law is no longer a requirement to earn justification, but an act of loving obedience in order that we might bear the fruit of God. In this chapter, Paul is exploring the nature of the conflict we experience when we struggle with sin. However, the issue is not fully resolved until chapter 8, so I'm not going to steal from whoever's doing next week. Um, so I'm not going to go fully into that. But this chapter does highlight how the struggle with sin is a common experience to all believers. And it's not evidence of our failing or falling away from God, but an outworking of our desire to draw near to Him. If you're not struggling, you're not trying to gain ground. Simply put, the closer we get to God, the more aware we are of our total inadequacy without him. So as we dive into verses 1 to 3, Paul writes about the role of law in a marriage. He uses this example of a way of unpacking what he said in the previous chapter. So in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So he's using this, this picture of a marriage as a way of, of explaining that. Now, because the legality of marriage was something universally understood by both parties, so both the Jews and the Gentiles, as people who knew what it meant to live under the rule of, the, of their kind of respective laws. In this example... He illustrates the point that the authority of the law is only binding during the lifetime of the person under it. That whilst alive, 
There are implications for failing to keep the law. He says, So then, if she is married to another man whilst her husband is living, she is called an adulteress. But in death, the obligations of the law no longer apply. In fact, he goes a step further here and shows that death not only releases the dead person from their legal obligations, but we see in verse 3 that it actually nullifies any obligations to the dead person. It says, but if her husband dies, she is free from the law. Then she is, mar- free. Then she is married. If she is married to another man, she is not adulterous. Tripping over me words today. Paul then goes on to say, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear the fruit of God. The implication here is that we were bound by, and in a sense married, to the law. But through his atoning death, Jesus nullified that contract once and for all, leaving us free to enter a new covenant of grace. Without the threat of legal repercussions. We're not just swapping one law for another law, which would also bring us death, but a whole new way, a new way of the Spirit that will bring us resurrection life. In verse 6, this is the key, one of the key verses, I think. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In verse 4, there are actually three elements, I think, that are worth highlighting. But let me just read that. Verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear the fruit of God. So, firstly, having died, you now belong to another. That's the first part. Likewise, my brother, you have also died through the law, to the law, through the body of Christ, so that you now belong to another. And that's Christ. We have experience, sorry, we experience him by sharing in his resurrection power. Again, in the previous verse, um, it talks about dying to sin through baptism and being resurrected with Christ. And thirdly, God's purpose is that we might bear fruit for God. So this whole idea of being free from the law would have been extremely shocking and challenging for the Jews who historically saw their righteousness as being founded on religious behaviour and obedience to the law. In In other words, salvation through works. They had to do certain things in order to be seen as right before God. It would have been equally shocking to the Gentiles, since the whole known world, to them at least, would be under the rule of Roman civil law. How could anyone escape the might of Rome? But both groups would no doubt be wondering who on earth Paul thought he was to be going around telling people that they were no longer under the Roman or the Mosaic law. 
but in fact under grace. After all, if we look at Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, we see a deep love of the law, describing it as more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. What Paul was really addressing was their misunderstanding. He wasn't actually talking about the civil law or the moral law, which they would still both have to keep. Of course, the Jews had been released from the rituals of the ceremonial law, meaning they no longer needed to perform sacrifices, offerings, feasts, Sabbaths, all of that kind of stuff in order to be presentable to God. The rituals were now replaced with relationship. So when we say free from the law, this isn't a a get out of jail free card. It doesn't mean everything is now permitted because laws do not apply to me, I am under grace. That's not, that's not what's happening here. You know, it's, it's not a get out of jail free, it's not a license to break the law. He's talking about the law of sin and death from which we have been delivered by Christ. This is something he goes on to mention in Romans 8, verse 2, saying, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So Paul then goes on to explore what we experience when we struggle with sin. Some had argued that since the law exposed what sin is, that the law created sin and was therefore evil. But Paul argues that the law does not create sin. It is necessary to expose sin. You don't hold a light bulb accountable for the stuff in the room it illuminates. Like I say, Paul argues that the law does not create sin, but it was necessary to expose the sin in order that we could experience repentance and the forgiveness of God. In verse 12, he affirms that, in fact, the law is holy, righteous, and good. The problem is is that we are not. I know I'm certainly not. So even though I'm ultimately made righteous in the eyes of God through Jesus... I am still living out the conflict between what God's nature in me desires and what my sinful nature wants me to do on a daily day-to-day basis. Paul is obviously frustrated as he experiences the inner conflict between God's will and his own. Coming to the realisation that because we are totally unable to keep the law, we are always under the condemnation of the law and our existence would be an endless futile struggle if it weren't for the fact that God has given us the victory. I don't know about you, but I find this massively reassuring. Because not only do I experience the same conflict, not only do we experience the same conflict, but we have the same Lord and Deliverer. There is a Native American proverb, and I think it's quite useful in explaining this struggle we have with sin. An old Cherokee is teaching his grandson about life. He turns to his grandson and says, a fight is going on inside me. It's a terrible fight, and it's between two wolves. One is evil. He is anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. He continued. The other is good. 
He is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The same fight is going on inside of you and inside of every other person too. The grandson goes quiet. Thought about it for a minute. Turns to his grandfather and says, which wolf will win? The old Cherokee simply smiled and replied, the one you feed. To put this into biblical terms, let's take a look at Galatians 6, 8, which says, Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So what is the application of this in our struggle with sin? This is where it gets practical. I like getting practical. So, everyone is seated with people they know or like or probably roughly the same age. I'm going to split you into four groups. And I think it's really important to get a real breadth of the church in each group because everyone has something different to bring. So, everyone's going to get a nice little card with a little number on it. They are one to four. No swapping to be with who you like. That said, don't feel pressured as well. You really don't want to be the person you're with. And what we're going to do. So we are going to all shake about a little bit. And each group I'm going to give a question. And we're going to spend about five minutes discussing that question. One person is going to be described, one person is going to beat back and get them off again. Come on, let's do one another. So, what we will do is ones around here, two somewhere around here, three, four. So, group one. Have the question How do we sow to the flesh? Hang on, that's the question of group one. Group number two, how do we sow to the spirit? Group number three, what do we do to the spirit? And then uh, group number four, what does it look like? Right then. So, it is time to feed back. So, group one, do we have a spokesperson? Or, it doesn't have to be one person. I'm, I'm, I'm easy. So, your question was, how do we sow to the flesh? So we learn with perception from entertainment, so how we, the books we read, the TV that we watch, the music that we listen to, yeah. that all feeds into we can either listen to stuff that's going to edify us spiritually and physically, or we can listen to time that's a bit of a waste of time really. Okay. So that's one of the ways we said, we said our feelings and emotions, mm-hmm. our thoughts, our relationship with God and other people as well, yeah. how we spend our time, who we spend our time with, have we got the right balance? Lack of knowing the word, it's almost an ignorance, and also a material focus. So, is our focus on God or off God? Brilliant. Does, and do any of the other groups have any opinions on any of that stuff or anything to add? No? Oh, you might, well, clearly you have performed the first complete answer. Well done, well done. So, yeah, 
really good stuff on there. I think one of the, one of the biggest things, certainly uh, in this generation, is setting your filters, your personal filters. So what you allow to come past the barrier of your eye, the barrier of your ear, what you allow into your heart, into your mind. Um, so yeah, I think that is a, a really big point. Thoughts, that's a really challenging one. How do, you, how, do you can, how do you combat that? I don't have an answer. I'm just throwing stuff out here right now. Okay, thank you very much. Group two, how do we sow to the Spirit? Um, how do we sow to the Spirit? Better do these from the top down or I'll miss one. Um, testimony, encouraging others, know the truth. Prayer, Obedience, leading by example, worship, serving, listening, meditating, spending time with Christians, reading the word, (laughs) persistence, Time for a friend in need of help or support. Fellowship. Curiosity. Giving. That's as much as we have. <laughs> Who came up with curiosity? Can you unpack that for us a little bit? Can you, can you explain that a little bit? I'm, I'm, yeah. Oh, there we go. Ding, 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 ding. Winner. And you have to be curious to know more about God and seek to know God more. Okay, yeah. Nice, yeah. So feeding feed the thirst for God. Excellent. This is great. This is, this is proper lazy preaching, by the way. I'm just getting you lot to do it. I make no apologies. I make no apologies. It does, it does the body good to hear from the body. Right then. Sharon, I see you holding the piece of paper. You do have a lovely speaking voice, so here we go. So, the question for group three was, what does it mean to be free from the law? This was a very hard question. Yes, it was. So, we... Um, we went down an example route because then it was easier to actually comprehend it. And we ended up talking about shopping on a Sunday as an example. The law being about keeping the Sabbath holy. And those of us that are older will remember a time when shops didn't open on a Sunday, so this wasn't even an option, but now we have a 24-hour culture seven days a week. So... This was very complex. I don't know if I'm the best person to explain. (laughs) But we were talking about being free from the law means not being legalistic. (laughs) Living from a place of wanting to honour God from your heart and living within your conscience. So that will look different for different people, but the general principles are always the same. I'm really sorry if I cause any offence in this, because this is just what we were discussing. It's not a, like, end product of the best opinion. <laughs> but 
it's something Rob and I have been talking about for several months, and there's a bit of some discussion around the group that, um, for example, shopping on a Sunday, as Paul said, would you make a habit of it every Sunday? We were saying, no, actually, broadly speaking, if you're observing Sunday as your Sabbath, which you may do, or you may have another day of the week, um, then we wouldn't do kind of worldly normal things. We would try and set aside time for God, to honour God within the house, within the family, within the rhythm of the week. Does that make sense? So we wouldn't want to make a habit of doing the everyday things on a day that we're trying to create some space for, to, to keep it from being crowded by the concerns of daily life. Does that make sense? So, um, but for some individuals, it might feel sinful to shop on a Sunday or, or any other things on a Sunday that you would identify with doing every other day of the week. So you would want to live within your conscience. And Rob said, for example, I'm really, can I repeat what you said? That's not to cause offence to anyone who might have said this, but for example, he would say, he wouldn't say at the front of church, <laughs> maybe this was said last week, uh, or the week before, if you need food, just pop down to Tesco and buy some and then come back and eat it here. Because, only because there might be some within the congregation that have a much more, um, you know, like a, a conscience that says, actually, it would be sinful for me to shop on a Sunday. Does that make sense? So you wouldn't want to cause your brother to stumble because it's all about living from your heart within your conscience and seeking to honour God. On the other hand... We've been saying we don't want to be legalistic and bound by the law in a way that says, oh, you know, you're desperate for milk because you've run out, because something happened during the week and it was bad planning, whatever, and it all, you know, life happens, doesn't it? Or you ended up in hospital or whatever crisis took place. Oh, but I couldn't go and get some today because I'm bound by the law on Sunday. And we're saying to be free from the law means you are free to go to Tesco. Or wherever, not necessarily Tesco. So we'll put that in the head. So, um, and then um, just taking that thought a bit further, Catherine was talking about the toy shop and the entertainer owner and how he has honoured God by not opening his shops on a Sunday, including Christmas Eve, um, and that God has uh, prospered the business in him honouring God. Yeah. There was loads more, but that is that enough? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's again. That's, no, that, that's great. That's great. Uh, but and also, you you need to balance that that kind of being respectful of other people's uh, people working within their conscience under the law, but balance that with like Sharon was saying, not being legalistic about it. Jesus healed on the Sabbath, yeah. for example. Yeah. Um, you know, I being free from the law doesn't mean you don't have to do certain things or that you shouldn't do certain things. For example, my kids, I legally have to feed them, clothe them, and educate them. <laughs> and I do. But I don't, I don't do it because I'm, I'm bound by law to do it. I do it because I love them and I want them to prosper. And that's, it's exactly the same. The reason we, we still fulfill the law is not because we have to or we're going to burn in hell because we've been redeemed. That's, that's not the case. We do it because we love 
God. And God loves us, which is why they're there in the first place, and he wants us to prosper. Right then. Group four. Unless anyone has anything to add on that, sorry. No. Group four. What does it look like to bear fruit for God? I've just got a picture in my head now of like fruit shaped like a little bear. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so, I have. We thought that the simplest answer to this question, what does it look like to bear fruit for God, was Jesus. So we reflect Jesus. So that is what it sort of boils down to. But both Howard and I immediately thought of Galatians 5 and actually looking at what the fruit of the Spirit is. So we sort of wrote it down. We've got peace, joy, love, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And then we thought, how does that look practically? So we thought about hospitality, generosity, sharing and giving to the poor, smiling is another one, um, good relationships, God-centric, talking to people that other people wouldn't, so the undesirables, not the in-crowd. Um, um, we've gone through pruning and discipline and challenges. We look different to how we did pre-Jesus. We keep in step with the Spirit and we're different to the world. I think that's everything. So, yeah, so those are the sort of things we thought about. Awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, keeping in step with the Spirit. <laughs> keeping in step with the Spirit. I, I love that. Because it, it says we are, there is benefit to keeping in step with the Spirit, but it implies that we, we do actually have to do something. It's not a passive act. We have to focus on the Spirit in order to stay in step with Him. If I walk across the room and someone's trying to match my steps, they have to watch my feet. And if they don't watch my feet, then we're going to end up in different places at different speeds. Um, and it's the, same, it's the same with the Spirit. The only way to, to win this battle between flesh and sin, flesh and sin, between sin and God's will, is not to think, I'm not going to sin. It's to think, I'm going to do God's will. If I tell everyone in this room not to think about tap dancing elephant, you are all now thinking about that because that's how people work. If I go, oh, I mustn't, I mustn't do this, I mustn't do this, I mustn't do this, you know I'm going to do that thing because I am focusing on it. I'm, I'm actually meditating on sin. What we should instead be doing is turning our gaze to what is righteous, what is holy, what is edifying, what is going to build us up. And that, we'll forget about the other thing. You know, it's called repentance, not, not backing away. God doesn't call us to, to back, say this is sin here. If I'm backing away from sin, I'm still looking at it. God calls us to repent, which means to turn away from and walk towards him. Thank you for that. Really good points. So, being free from the condemnation of the law is not the end of the battle between our flesh and God's will. But here's the good news. The battle goes on, but the victory is won. The battle goes on, but the victory is won. We fight from a position of victory against an enemy who is ultimately defeated. Since, as it says in verse 4, we have died to the law through the body of Christ and are therefore no longer bound by it, we are liberated from the notion that we must earn our salvation. We can't. There is nothing you or I can do to earn forgiveness, 
earn salvation, to earn anything. We are hopeless without Christ. As if we, as if we, there was something we could do to get our way to heaven. The idea is ridiculous. So, to put it another way, as hymn writer James Proctor wrote in 1864, cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. I'm going to close in prayer now. Lord, thank you for the incredible gift of your grace. By its very definition, we do not deserve it, Lord. And we thank you that you lavish it on us, Lord. You don't just give it to us, you pour it all over us, you drown us in it. Lord, keep our eyes fixed on you. Don't let us be distracted by trying to be good people. Deliver us from trying to be good people, God, because we can't. We are sinful, we are fallen. But in you, we are justified before the throne of God in heaven. Thank you. Amen.